But uh, we'll begin with prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you for being a good and gracious God to us, for giving us breath in our lungs. And we do uh, pray, Heavenly Father, as we look at the book of Proverbs, that you'd give us wisdom to live lives that are pleasing to you, that we would live lives that are loving to one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, thanks, Bob. Well, the last time we had done some apologetics, but I mentioned we were between messages and Proverbs, and I'd given you an assignment last time, and I know some of you didn't get it because you haven't been here, and that's okay, but here was the homework, and I wanted to give people an opportunity to answer some of these questions. I had four of them for you, and the first one was, in this section of Proverbs, what is being personified? Now, remember, personification is where you have either an inanimate object or perhaps an abstract idea that's being likened to a human being with human attributes, as if it speaks and moves and does things that a human being does. So in this section, does anyone want to take a stab at what was being personified? Wisdom. Wisdom, yeah, amen, amen, well said. Yeah, good answer, good answer. <laughs> Very good. Very good, I'm sorry, that was an easy one, okay. All right. Can I, can I say yes. At the, at the heading of almost all Bibles, yeah. it says wisdom warns. Oh, right, so, right. I, so you could even know that answer without reading it. Right, right. That's very good, very good. Yep, just look at the heading on your Bible. It'll give it away. All right, so number two, what is the main point of, I should have put the definite article in, the pericope? And that is not the misspelling of periscope, once again. Pericope is just the section of Scripture that really uh, belongs together as a unit to be studied as a unit. Does anyone know what the main point is? And you might have subpoints with it, but kind of the main thrust. Uh, Brian, I'll give it a stab. Yeah, um, it's it's godly wisdom, and when you read this, it's interesting that. Without godly wisdom, there's also a sense of uh, impending judgment that would come upon people. Right. Well said. I I think you're exactly right. There's wisdom to be had that comes from God. And those who listen to it, if the fool or the naive, if they will listen to the wisdom that comes from God's word, they're going to be spared hardships and trouble in this world. Now, remember... The book of Proverbs doesn't give absolutes. It gives general principles. Because you could always raise your hand and say, wait a minute, isn't it true that you have Christians that are arrested and they're in trouble because of righteousness? Yes. But the point is, in general life, as you're dealing with people, if you don't break the law, things go better for you, for example, than those who do break the law. So again, there's always going to be exceptions to many of the principles in Proverbs, but without generalities, we have no wisdom. And that's one of the things that I think we have to kind of stand against in our culture today, because oftentimes you'll have, especially in academia, people say, well, you're just making a generality. Well, if you don't have generalities, it means you see no patterns to life, and it means you have no wisdom. Now, if you never have a specific example to back up your generalities then perhaps your generalities are really meritless and have no evidence. So here's a point. When you're debating someone, if you have the general principle, such and such always happens when, or so and so always does, come up with 
two or three examples that prove the generality. Um, one thing that I learned from, there's a man named, how many in here have ever heard Dennis Prager? Dennis Prager, very, very bright man on the radio. Um, he's not a, a believer, but he is a, a theist. He belie- he's a Jew, a, uh, a man who was actually taught some Torah. And what's very interesting is whenever he gives a generality, he'll always give three specific examples, or at least one if he only has a short time. And so that's something that I think is worthy of thought. If I don't have any specifics for my generality, maybe the point isn't valid. So the main point, yes, if someone will submit themselves to God's wisdom, in general, their life is going to go well. But if they'll reject it and act as the fool or the naive, things won't go well for them in this world. One of the things that brings to my mind is, remember the commandment to honor your father and mother? Why does that? That's the only commandment that has a promise listed with it, which is so it will go well with you in the land. Why? Well, because wisdom generally comes from one's parents. And again, what's being accepted is that, yes, there's godliness coming from your parents. If they're complete heathen, you might not want to listen to them. But what's being assumed is that your parents are godly and they have godly wisdom to share. So that would tie into this as well. Now, number three, I'm sorry, Brian, go ahead. I just wanted to add that in verse 28, it says, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. So not only uh, do you have the uh, misfortune of not following his wisdom, but uh, like most people, saved or not saved, when they run into calamity, they'll turn to a God and uh, God's not answering them. Well said, and we'll come to that when we get to that verse. You're right. In verse 28, it's, it starts talking about the calamity that befalls the fool and the naive. And what's interesting is we all know that there's a time where if God's wisdom is spurned long enough, you end up living out the consequences of your foolish life. And at that time, you're going to suffer. It's too late to have heed the, heeded the warnings. That's the idea. So it's kind of like the analogy I have. If you've already drowned it's too late to be looking for the life preserver, right? <laughs> a little too late for that. So that's the idea is to listen to the wisdom that comes from God's word while you're young. And so if you're going to look at an accent here in chapter 1, verses 20 through 33, in other words, who is this message? I should say, to whom is this message directed? It's really directed towards the youth. And again, that's what's hard. I know none of you are going to go out and probably go... Um, now, probably I know that you guys will not be going out and robbing the 7-Eleven anytime soon. But the wisdom that's going to be revealed here is wisdom that our youth and our young generation needs to hear because it's going to keep them from trouble. And so if we're equipped with it, maybe we can help equip them with it. Now, number three, I think you hit that uh, answer to that question, what risks are there in not heeding wisdom's voice? And you said, hey, they're going to run into trouble and trials. So very good. Um, anyone else on that? Yeah, Nancy. Well, I was just going to make a comment because there was a lot of uh, talk about not liking knowledge. Yeah. What you're discussing, but it, it's what you speak of a lot is is lacking that reverence to God, lacking that fear of God. Yeah. And I just wanted to make that comment. Yeah, no, very good. And, and that's what I'm going to, I think something you're going to see in this section is the lack of wisdom is tied directly to unbelief. So it's not that an unbeliever can't ever do anything that's wise. And equally true would be it's not that every believer is always wise all the time. But generally speaking, 
the unregenerate do that which is unwise in their life and they'll, they'll make a cacophony of errors that brings destruction upon them. Whereas those who heed the wisdom that comes from God, they live lives that are better, lives that don't lead to destruction. You know, it's interesting. Think about even the fact that you had a, an America at one time that had more of a biblical ethos. I'm not claiming that America was ever a Christian nation. Bob and I have gone to great lengths to show from Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, that there's only one nation that's ever been given a covenant by God, and that's Israel. But there was an ethos where much of Western civilization was built on some of the principles that we find in the Judeo-Christian scriptures. And so you could have, for example, even a person who's not a believer, but because they had a biblical ethos that surrounded them, they even lived a better life. They, they would. Um, how many times you watch a cowboy movie and someone says, uh, prepare to meet your maker, you know, one cowboy's going to shoot the other one. Well, even there, it assumes that there is a creator, and uh, he's not a pantheist. He doesn't say, you know, prepare to meet your karma, right, and uh, <laughs> prepare for rebirth, right? So what I'm pointing out, and read the, have you ever read some letters from the Civil War era? Isn't it amazing in the Civil War era, you have people talking about the providence of God, and they're citing Isaiah. There's more scripture reading by Civil War soldiers than there are in a lot of pulpits today. And it's, it's shocking, the ethos that you had. So anyway, that provides wisdom even in the culture. Now, anyone have any examples from their own life that they wanted to share? And I'm not going to cut it off here as, as we proceed through our study today. Feel free to share. But anyone have any uh, examples from your own life where you've seen either in yourself or other? Oh, Bob, sorry. My that was a good peripheral vision I test. I think I am. Uh, <laughs> Well, I grew up on a farm, and yeah. I believe that my father had a lot of wisdom. Yeah. And I really cared about what he had to say. Yeah. And I followed him around when I was a little kid like a puppy dog out on the farm. And he couldn't get rid of me. I just wanted to know if I wanted to be on a tractor. But things he taught me, I still remember. And it's helped me my whole life. For, for example, I remember when I was a teenager, or maybe when I was back from college, he said... To me, when you're a farmer, the only thing you have is your time. Wow. And you're never wasting it when you're working on your own farm. Mm, wow. And he says the farmers that don't do well are the ones that think their time's too important to fix their tractor, wow. to repair, the, whatever. But he said they always have time to go to the pool hall, right, which right. in Iowa, that's where you went. Was, sure. You know, you go in there and have coffee and they play pool. Yeah. He said, your time is what you have. You're not wasting it. Use it. And there's no job on your farm that's beneath you. Wow. And yeah, I still yeah. remember the conversation. And that's something that maybe you could think I'm wasting my time because for most of my life, I fixed up old cars, rebuilt engines and kept driving them. Yeah. But I'm just thinking like what my dad taught me. Wow. That's and I never had car payments I couldn't make. Yeah. And I, you know, we stayed yeah. out of trouble. But yeah. there's other ways to have wisdom besides being a farmer right. and working on your own farm. But you could apply that to your home or right. even your job. Work hard because yeah. this is what you're here for now. So. Bob, it's a great point. In fact, that's part of the wisdom that we, we see in Scripture is the, the biblical work ethic. In Second Thessalonians 3, 6... If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Or I think it's 2 Thessalonians. We'll, we'll find it later today. But in 2 Thessalonians 3, think about it. If Paul says if a man does not work, he does not eat, that's a work ethic. 
um, you're right, time is a commodity that's precious. And um, it's funny, as you're saying that, I think about, remember World War II, the GIs, the big question was, can the American GI or Marines stand up to the Germans and the Japanese? Well, you had so many of these kids were farmers, they could build, rebuild, do anything. And um, as you said, there's no job beneath you. As I found out in my life, a lot of my jobs are above me. <laughs> I can't rebuild a tractor like a lot of the, the, the guys on the farms are geniuses. There's a lot of wisdom. They can do anything. They can rebuild anything. And so there, there's a lot of wisdom there from your dad. And he, um, I know throughout your whole life, Bob, you've mentioned that he was a big source of wisdom for you. And so Bob, in that sense, really emulated what the passage is about. Listen to the wisdom that comes that's godly from your, your parents. So thanks. For, oh, yeah, Brian. Then we'll come to you, Eric. I have too many examples of lack of wisdom prior to uh, salvation, so I don't want to get into that. But, but interestingly, interestingly, on the way in today, I'm uh, listening to uh, Eric Metaxas, mm. and on his show he had uh, Josh McDowell's son who was on there. And I think an example for everybody in life is we see what's going on in our world now, how everything is pointed towards sexuality. Mm. And if you were to follow God's example of man and woman, you would eliminate so many problems in life, i.e. sexually transmitted diseases, People left, people who don't want their children in abortions, yeah. people left in uh, 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 places for adoption. Uh, uh, you would just eliminate divorce. Yeah. Uh, you would eliminate all of these uh, societal issues yes. just by following one right. of God's uh, 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 examples. Well said, yes. And I did hear that on the way in. Yes, Eric. Yeah, one thing I can think of is uh, in our family, you know, we lived for really many years in a really small town, yeah. and there wasn't much to do, and we were very close. We shoot baskets with the kids, you know, and shoot. Yeah. We have three sons, and shoot baskets, and you know, do things and stuff. And so we were pretty close, um, and and life was pretty peaceful. And then we moved to a, a bigger city, bigger town, kind of on the outskirts of the Twin Cities, and and um, you know, all of a sudden, our kids went to school, and they were taught that they really were smarter than their parents. And they, they had friends that had so much. Yeah. And they used to say, you know, you guys are really stupid, Mom and Dad, yeah. <clears throat> you know, because this other family has so much and all that. And I used to say to them, you know, it looks like they're really wealthy, but I just wonder how much debt they've got and all of that. Yeah. And, and so, you know, uh, the kids went through quite a transitional period where it yeah. was kind of difficult for them. Yeah. And they looked at their friends and what they were being taught in school. And I remember saying to my, my kids, and they didn't like this, but I said, you know, if you think about it, your mom and dad are the only ones that really care if you live or die. Mm. They didn't like that. Wow. They'd like to That's think true. the world was very benign. But I said, you think about it. We're the ones that care about whether you live or die. Yes. And we're not always going to be right, but... You should listen to us. Right. And they didn't like it, and it was rebellion. There was all, a lot of difficult years. But, you know, I, uh, they've all come back and said, thanks. 
wow. you, you guys were right. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> you know, so it is worth it. But, boy, I'll tell you, when you get into the bigger cities and the towns, like Bob's, Bob's comment about growing up on a farm. You know, yeah. we weren't on a farm, but a small town, yeah. a little slower pace. So um, yeah, there's a lot good. of challenges to parenting. And there he is. Th- and the youth have a lot of foolishness to overcome. Yeah, Eric, well said. You know, it's interesting you say, you know, your children went from that phase where they would listen to they won't listen. And I think a lot of children go through that where they listen to you. You're a genius. Then you go to be someone who shouldn't be listened to. You don't know anything. And then when they grow up and they have to go out on their own, all of a sudden, hey, mom and dad were the geniuses again. Um, How did they do that? And I went through some similar phases to that myself as a youth. But what's beautiful, what you said is, yeah, you're right. The father and mother are the only ones that, in some sense, love the child unconditionally. And that is so meaningful to the child to consider because why would you attempt to deceive them? You may be an heir, but it's certainly not going to be deliberate if, if it, you know, you're telling them something. So the point is, if there's anyone that they should trust who's trying to tell them the straight truth, it's the parents. So. Oh, yeah. Could you mention counterexamples? What if somebody has horrible parents? Yeah, good, uh, good point, Bob. You know, that's one of the problems. There are always counterexamples where you have parents that are wayward, who are not believers, who aren't decent to their children, who really don't love their children in any meaningful way. And that often creates problems even with people's relationship with God because they assume God must be like their parents. But the issue, again, is in the book of Proverbs, it's always talking about the general principles. Generally, the average or general parent is one who is pro-child. They love their child. They do what's right for their child. They take care of their child. That's what's being assumed to be true in the book of Proverbs. And again, Proverbs always is talking about generalities. There will always be exceptions to the rule. Okay, so that's something we have to keep in our minds when we're going through Proverbs. So let's start in the... um, I actually have a chiastic structure. I just want you to see how this is outlined. And what's amazing is... I had a hard time when I was a writer coming up with outlines when I was a kid. And I think about the beautiful nature of these chiastic structures that the biblical writers had. It's amazing. Listen to how they, this is Solomon, how he structures his arguments. First of all, there's an appeal to hear in verses 20 through 21. And the reason everyone should hear wisdom that comes from the scriptures is because it will take you from calamity. Verse 22, who is it addressed to, this call for wisdom? It's to those who don't have it, namely the young, who are often the naive and the fool. Uh, Verse 23, there's a declaration of disclosure. Yes, wisdom is personified and wants to disclose itself to the world, in particular to the naive. The reason for the announcement is to keep one for trouble. Then you come to the midpoint, It's the announcement of calamity. If the fool or the naive won't listen to the wisdom, calamity certainly will come. Verses 29 through 30, it reiterates that. that That's why there was this announcement to keep one from calamity. Verse 31, declaration of retribution. Yes, if one doesn't listen to God's wisdom, one will suffer here and now, generally speaking. Then you have the destiny of the scoffers and the fools. They suffer and then you have the appeal to hear once again. So notice what brackets the section. There's an appeal to hear. Notice that brackets the whole section. Why? Because otherwise calamity comes. So anytime you look at a chiastic structure, Bob has talked about this as well, you always want to look at kind of the, 
the outside and the very inside. Those are the major points that are being accentuated. There's an announcement, come and hear God's wisdom, why otherwise calamity comes on your life. Okay, that's the midpoint. All right, so let's begin then by looking at wisdom personified, verses 20 through 22. Solomon wrote this, he says, Wisdom shouts in the streets, she lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Now, again, you have here wisdom. Notice on the screen, wisdom is shouting from the streets. And so wisdom is being personified. Again, that's an inanimate object or an abstract idea taking on the form of a human being. That's personification. All right. Now, what's interesting is wisdom, as we're going to see, is a likened to a woman. And in the book of Proverbs, there are four women that are alluded to. Let me, I'm going to read these to you, and then I'm going to cite some verses. And if you feel like writing them down, great. But I want to get them on tape in case you wanted to go back. But the first woman that's personified here in the book of Proverbs, the first woman in Proverbs is wisdom. So, for example, you'll see her personified here in chapter 1, the section that we're in. Again, in chapter 3, verses 13 through 20. Chapter 4, verses 5 through 9. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 36. And again, in chapter 9, 1 through 6. So that's the first use of a woman. It's wisdom personified. Second, there's going to be a contrast in the book of Proverbs, and that's the woman of folly. A woman is depicted as folly. That's in chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. Again, the woman of folly is chapter 9, verses 13 through 18, and that serves as a contrast to the woman who's personified as wisdom. A third woman is the woman who is one's wife. And so she is the prototypical good wife. She's listed in chapter 5, verses 15 through 19. And you also might say later in Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman. But then you have the fourth woman in the book of Proverbs is the stranger or the adulteress who tries to allure the man into destruction. And that's found in chapter 2, verses 16 through 19, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, chapter 6, 24 through 32, chapter 7, verses 25 through 27. So sorry to get so many out there, all those verses, but I just wanted you to have them on tape if you wanted to go back and see them. But here's the big point. The big point here is wisdom is not some hidden treasure that you have to go to some cavernous region of the earth to find, but rather wisdom that comes from God is something that is public. It is something that all can have. In fact, notice you have an allusion to the streets, you have allusion to the square, and you have an allusion, notice here, to the gates. Those were the most public structures of the city that was typical in the ancient Near East in that day. That was the public arena. And the point of that is, again, you don't need some shaman to get you secret knowledge to have wisdom. But the wisdom is something that's publicly available for those who will hear the Word of God. And that's what we're going to see is that wisdom comes from the Word of God. I remember Bob made this point many years ago, and I think I talked about it again in Romans But the idea of public versus private is a big deal in the scriptures. Let me um, have you turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 3, 24 through 25. 
I want to talk about this idea of public versus private and related to wisdom in the gospel. As you're turning to Romans 3, 24 through 25, remember that the greatest profundity of wisdom ever found in the world, the, the most profound wisdom, is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God would die, have his son die on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's the greatest display of wisdom. And what's very interesting is Paul says something about how when Jesus died, this wasn't something that was done in secret, this display of God's wisdom, but rather it was public. Notice what it says, Romans 3, 24 through 25. Remember now, remember in verse 23, Paul had said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, he says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Now notice verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Okay, so let's just stop there. Notice Jesus Christ was displayed publicly. In fact, the Lexham English Bible, I think, does a good job at rendering this Greek construction. It says this, quote, Christ was the one whom God made publicly available as the mercy seat, unquote. Isn't that a great translation? It is ironic. It is. So think about propitiation. Propitiation is where we find atonement for God's wrath because God is appeased. So remember in the atonement, I like to break the atonement of Jesus Christ and what he provides for us in two parts. There's the human part, which is expiation. Our sins are removed. Okay, and you see that alluded to, remember, in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, where the high priest would confess the sins of the people on the scapegoat, and the scapegoat would be led out away from the city into the wilderness. The wilderness, by the way, was the idea of that's where the demonic realm was. So the sins were sent back away from the people. That's expiation, the removal of our sins. When Jesus died, he removed our sins. That's expiation. But there's a God-centered aspect to atonement as well. Why? Because he's a righteous God who must have payment paid in full. That was the second goat in the Day of Atonement. When the high priest would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on what? The mercy seat. Now, the term in the Greek Septuagint for mercy seat is hilsterion. Hilsterion is rendered propitiation. That's where we get our term, propitiation. That's why the New American Standard Bible renders, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. But the Lexham English Bible is taking the propitiation out, just letting us know where it comes from. It's the mercy seat. And so the idea is when God would look down at his broken law contained within the Ark of the Covenant, instead of seeing the broken law, he would see the blood of the animal and his wrath would be appeased because there was payment paid. Ultimately, all of that was designed to foreshadow Jesus Christ, who expiates our sins, who removes them from us. So they are, as David said, as far away as the east is from the west. So far will he remove our sins from us. But it's also the truth that God's demand for payment and justice was paid in Christ. And so when Jesus died, he didn't die in the Holy of Holies. Remember in the Holy of Holies, it was only one man who could enter in to see the propitiation, the mercy seat, and that was only once a year. It was only the high priest who could enter in, and so it was done in private. But when Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God who was slain for our sins, when he dies, 
It wasn't something that was private. It was publicly available for all to see. So this isn't some hidden religion. This isn't something where you need some special shaman to reveal to you that you have to go do something difficult. You have to go to some cavern out in the Himalayas or something. No, this is publicly available. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ were publicly seen. Remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus was seen by over 500 brethren at one time. His resurrection was public. His crucifixion was public. So the greatest display of God's wisdom was publicly available. And in a sense, isn't it beautiful that that's what we're seeing here in Proverbs, that is wisdom is crying out. Wisdom that comes from God's word is not something that's in secret. It's publicly available to all of us. And so as we proclaim God's word, we're not doing some secret handshake, you know, where we have to have the secret decoder ring and you have some secret code. No, what we have is something that's publicly available to every single person. All right, now, any comments or questions on that? And I'll keep going here. Let me get a quick drink. By the way, I apologize. I'm chewing gum, not to be rude, but I've got a problem with reflux and it kind of helps me out there. So I just wanted to let you know, I, I meant, to, meant to mention that last time because it's kind of weird to have a public speaker with gum in their mouth, but that's why I'm doing this. So, so I've got a medical note from my doctor. No? <laughs> okay. Um, notice verse 22. I also want you to see that the primary audience for this declaration that they must listen to wisdom is notice it's fourfold. It's the naive ones. It's the simple-minded, the scoffers, and the fool. Now, all four of those are not just, they're not fools or naive because somehow they're mentally deficient. It's because they have rejected thus far or are ignorant thus far of the Word of God. The Word of God is precious, and it is what makes someone wise, not only unto salvation ultimately, but even to live a life free of trials and troubles here and now, generally speaking. Now, I want um, someone, if someone wouldn't mind doing this, turn to Job 28, 12 through 17. And if, um, yes, Tom, we got to get a microphone over to you. Um, there's Carly. Thank you, Carly. The public versus private, just uh, it helps me think of today's dilemma that we're in. Is, is it the whole public versus private? Uh, it's like the experts are the only ones that know and the rest of us can't. Or it's the clergy that knows and the rest of us can't. And I think it's so precious that it's available for us to have this wisdom. That is a great analogy, great example. Yes, there's so much of that today where it's only the experts that have the inside track and the rest of us are a bunch of buffoons who have to just follow along. Now, saying that, again, there are times where experts' opinion are important, but you're right, there's times where something, some idea is in the general sphere of the public that can be weighed in by everyone and everyone can see it plainly. And there is an over-reliance on secret knowledge that comes from some expert when, in fact, you don't have to be an expert at all to know what they're claiming. One example would be um, so, many, so many times I will hear when I would see an airline crash and someone would come up to me and they'll say, well, you're an airline pilot. Why did it crash? And I'll just have to tell them I don't know any more than you do. You know, I'm... I, it, it crashed. Um, my dad always used to joke, he was a pilot too, he said the, the key to flying is to stay in the middle of the air. 
If you get too high or get too low, you get into trouble. <laughs> really dumb, right? But stay in the middle of the air. If you get too low, that's when you get into trouble. But um, so yeah, there's this over over usage of experts and the, almost the idea that we have some hidden knowledge that someone else doesn't. And um, I think that's a great application, Tom, of this. this the wisdom that comes from God's word, praise be to God, it's available for every believer. Um, when we were up in Canada, Bob gave a message on sola scriptura. And what's very interesting, the tact that, and maybe you want to talk about this, Bob, Bob proved that the only way we can have scripture alone as the final authority is if you have the priesthood of every believer. Because let's say I'm the only one that can interpret it. Well, now I'm the Pope, and now I'm the authority rather than the scriptures. And that was so astute. I think, talk about your message that you gave there, Bob. Well, the, it's interesting that at the initial part of the Reformation, Luther was a, promoting two key ideas, the authority of scripture and the priesthood of every believer. Yes. Um, somehow the second one isn't taught as much as it should be. Right. And I noticed you, you were there. A lot of the people there were creedalists. Yeah. Swear oath to a solemn creed, and that's how you stay orthodox. They didn't, I got no, it was like blank. Wow. Somebody said crickets. Right. They didn't want to hear about the priesthood of every believer. Yeah. And so then I wrote an article about it. Proved it from scripture yeah. at, you know, about that same time. And now I just published an article about creedalism yeah. and challenged the idea that you force people to swear an oath, which causes some people to have a crisis of conscience because Jesus warned against taking oaths. Right. So where's that? I, I address that in the article. That you believe everything in this creed and if you don't, well, then you better go find another church. Right. Well, so then what happened to the priesthood of every believer? So you have this big document. Can't we question anything? Can we just believe what we're told or go somewhere else? Yeah. And then in the article I mentioned this, huge denominations that have their creeds and their oaths are entirely apostate. Wow. But they never publicly say, we don't believe anything in our confession. Right. Yeah. We just, well, you know, words have different meanings and who knows. And they just do what they want to do. Right. And so you have liberalism up and down every street, in, at least when I drive to church. Right. And it doesn't work. So we published yeah. about that. Yeah. The priesthood of every believer doesn't mean everybody's right. But what it means is that every Christian needs to be taught the word of God. Every Christian needs to, by God's grace, get the tools to study and to look and to understand. And then we can discuss publicly what's the best reading. What is this verse saying? That's right. And that's a learning thing. Now, they may even have the right truth in their creed on propitiation. Right, right. But if you just say, well, I, you know, the elders swore an oath and I swear an oath. It's, but you don't actually go and learn it. Right. And then you don't have a vital knowledge of it. That's right. And how much better is it to learn and to open the scriptures and discuss? And that's what this meeting is for. So I would, well, you've been here. <laughs> Brian has been in the little meeting since the, what, when, when did you first come? Early 90s 90s, or so? was it? 
Yeah, yeah. we've always yeah. had one meeting yeah. where I've been, when I was a teacher, yeah. to discuss. Right. That's the priesthood of every believer. Yeah. Doesn't mean everybody's right, but together we're looking for what did God say? Amen. How does it apply to my life? Amen. And so, I, so I think we have to go back to that. Amen. Well said. And teach, give people tools, help them learn, help them grow. That's right. Help them study the Bible. Bob and I, when we met uh, each other, we were at uh, Northwestern, or excuse me, Bethel University, and. One of the problems there is they had this statement of faith, a doctrinal statement. And the doctrinal statement is excellent. If you look at Bethel, you, you would agree with every point of it. The problem, as Bob said, is they never taught a lick of it. And we started a term, we called it file cabinet theology, where if someone says, hey, you don't seem to be ever teaching the truth, and they go to the file cabinet, and they open it up, and they say, oh, yeah, well, here, we believe in it. But their professors will never teach the students. And in fact, if you hold to them, they'll contradict you. They'll grade you down in your papers if you use biblical language. They, ha- they want nothing to do with what's in the file cabinet. And so that's file cabinet theology. And as Bob has shown in his writings and in that message, the only rebuttal to it is the priesthood of every believer. Where a believer, what did Luther say? A believer armed with the truth of Scripture can tell the Pope to be silent and sit in the corner, right? Yeah, he, because that's what he did. Yeah, that's right. He said, no, the Pope doesn't speak for God. God speaks for Scripture alone. That's right. And it doesn't matter your status in some hierarchical church, right. but what's true. Right. Amen. And the truth is powerful. It's life-changing. Yes. And it should be on the lips of all of us by God's grace. We can all be corrected. We can all learn. And it's, that's in the scripture. So I think we could do that. Amen. I don't think we should give up. Right. I, I love that you brought up the propitiation, public truth. Yes. The book of Hebrews. Yes. You know, there's so many contrasts here. We can just do that. It's our Amen. mutual salvation. That's right. Amen. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Now, it's interesting. If we have just the Pope and we just have creeds, then we do have secret religion. But if we have the priesthood of every believer, then it's public. You can, And that's one of the issues. Remember in the Reformation, what did Luther want to do right away is he wanted to get the text of Scripture in the hands of the average person and so have the Scriptures translated into German, for example, why? Because he believed in the priesthood of every believer. This wisdom isn't something that's to be locked away in just in some scholar's mind who understands the Greek or the Hebrew or the Latin or whatever it was in, in, in that particular day. They had a lot of Latin translations. So um, would somebody read Job 28, 12 through 17 for me? That's Job 28, 12 through 17. I want you to read this because it talks about how precious the truth of wisdom is that comes from God. Again, Job 28, 12 through 17. Oh, thanks, Barb. Listen to how precious this is and how valuable. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or sapphires. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Wow, thanks, Barb. 
So what's the point there? Is there any contradiction between Job 28 and what we're reading in Proverbs? Does Job 28 seem to indicate that it is secret? No, I don't think that that's the point in Job that Barb just read. I think the point is that it's so precious, it's priceless. Who can pay for it? It's something, this wisdom that comes from God's word, that is so valuable. The writer Job says that it's more precious than, than gold. And so again, he's not saying that it's something that's secret, but it's something that's that precious. Why? Because it comes from God. Again, God's word is what discloses wisdom for us. Now, we're going to see here that wisdom is beckoning, but still the fools refuse. Verses 23 through 25. It says, Turn to my reproof, I, excuse me, turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you, because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention, and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to notice here in blue this phrase, I will pour out my spirit on you. Remember, this is still wisdom personified. So this is wisdom declaring that for those who will listen, the wisdom will come to them, that the wisdom will be bestowed upon them. But when we open to the wider corpus of our of our scriptures, what we find out is that wisdom is always something that comes from God. God is the one that bestows wisdom upon people. Now, the reason I'm saying that is how many times do you have in the scriptures the promise that God will pour his spirit upon people? Well, it's quite often. So I want you to turn, for example, to Exodus 28.3. And I want to start making the case that as wisdom is being personified, in some sense, it's a stand-in for God. Not that we, we got to keep clear, this is wisdom, but ultimately we have to know that wisdom comes from God. And I think there's several passages that show us this. Exodus 28.3, hope you've turned there. In this passage, you're going to have God speaking to Moses about getting these men who were gifted by God to create the garments for the priests. Exodus 28.3, it says, You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as priest to me. Now notice that phrase, whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom. Who is the I in that passage? Well, that's God, isn't it? So God is the one who bestowed wisdom upon the workers so that they may do that which was needed for the tabernacle service. All right. Now, turn uh, to Deuteronomy 34.9. Just turn ahead to Deuteronomy 34.9. Here's where Joshua is going to be the successor now to Moses. And listen to what it says here. This is Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 9. By the way, uh, before we read it, remember Joshua, his name is the same as Jesus. It's Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. Joshua is to bring the people into the promised land, but it's a lesser promised land. Jesus, the greater Yeshua, is going to bring the people of God into the greater promised land. The lesser Yeshua, the first Joshua, gets rid of many of the enemies of God. Remember that little incident where they were marching around, right? The walls of Jericho. But it's the ultimate Yeshua who will get rid of all of God's enemies. And so there's a little bit of a parallel. That's how important Joshua is. Joshua, it says of him, Deuteronomy 34, 9, Now Joshua the son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom, 
For Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Notice there was the laying on of hands. There was a corporate solidarity between Moses and Joshua, as Moses was the one who spoke for the people of God. Now Joshua was the one who was going to be leading the people. So where did the wisdom come from? Well, it came from God. That's the point. I think that's what we have to see in Proverbs, that yes, even though wisdom is being personified, it's not some abstract force out there like in the Star Wars, where someone can come up with the force and you can start maneuvering objects around. No, wisdom is not a force, but it's something that comes from God. One more passage. Turn to 1 Kings 4, 29 through 30. The reason I want you to turn here is because this relates to Solomon himself. Solomon, who was in fact writing the very book that we're reading, Proverbs, at least many sections of it. Again, 1 Kings 4, 29 through 30. Listen to the claim here. It says, Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east. This is verse 30. And all the wisdom of Egypt. Does everyone see that? So where did the wisdom come from that God, excuse me, that Solomon had? It came from God. Now, notice who is this in this text in Proverbs, who is the wisdom available for? Well, it's to those who turn to the reproof that God has. Now, the reason I'm focusing on this idea, turn, does everyone see that on the screen? That's the term shuv. Shuv, if you use that five times, you can use that at dinner parties. Shuv means to return or to repent. It is the term most often used in the entire Bible for the term repent. So what's very interesting about that is think about the fool, the naive, the scoffer that's being addressed. The natural default position of humanity who are born sinners because we're in Adam, whether you're a man, woman, or child, we're born into this world sinners, we're walking away from the wisdom of God. Why? Because that's our default position. But when we repent, we're turning from idolatry, sin, rebellion, and we're turning to God in his terms. So part of the repentance that we have is turning from the foolishness of this age, the foolishness of youthful thought dominated by dead sinners in Adam, turning, to, turning to the, from that to the wisdom of God, the wisdom that comes from his word. That's the idea of turning. Now, what's interesting is there's always a command in Scripture to repent and to turn, but who can do it? Well, only those that God enables to do it. Isn't that ironic? So here you'll have a lot of commands. For example, remember, we're going to be learning this, by the way, not too many months from now when we're in the book of Matthew. Jesus commands everyone to be perfect as his heavenly Father is perfect. How many in here think, hey, <laughs> no sweat, I'll start, I'll start on that tomorrow. I'm just going to be perfect. That's it. No more sin. Well, we know we have to rely upon God and his gracious power so that we don't sin against him. In the same way, God commands every one of us to turn or to repent and to come to his word and wisdom and faith and salvation, and yet we know we can't do it of our own power. And so I want you to remind, remind all of you here that that is the case. This turning is something that God does. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 10, 16. I'm going to show you a uh, contrast between that and Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. I'm going to talk about this idea of turning 
and how God is the one who enables it. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Please turn your Bibles there. By the way, the reason I'm using the law so much here this morning is because Solomon would have known this by heart. He would have had a lot of this just completely memorized. If you said Deuteronomy 10, I don't know if they'd have the numbers, but if you pointed to this section, he'd be able to cite it for you. He knew this. This was in his heart and in his mind. Deuteronomy 10, 16. It says, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. That's a command. God is commanding his people to have a circumcised heart, meaning one that functions properly, one that isn't hardened and recalitrant, one that will respond to him and his word. That's the idea. But you know what? They could never do it. Why? Because they're born dead sinners in Adam just like we were. So turn your Bibles ahead to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. This is the great promise that we end up seeing ultimately fulfilled at the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches that this is the fulfillment of, Deut- or excuse me, of Joel 2.28, that God would send his spirit. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, notice here, it says, Moreover, Yahweh, notice Lord all caps, that's Yahweh, Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Stop there for just a moment. Who's going to do it? God is going to. He's going to circumcise the heart of the Israelites. And notice also, he says to your descendants, the term descendants is seed, Zerah. Now remember, what's the very first promise in Genesis 3.15? That the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. The term for seed in Genesis 3.15 is Zerah. So the seed of the woman is ultimately the Messiah. He's one. He's one. But all who believe and trust in him become part of the corporate seed. They're part of the descendants. But it's only through God enabling people to have a circumcised heart that they can turn and shove and repent and come to his word. That's the idea. And become part of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice what's the purpose. Notice where I left off with descendants. Here's the purpose clause right after that. He says... What's the purpose of having a circumcised heart? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all of your being, is a good way of summarizing it, and to love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do do that? Well, you turn from the foolishness of unbelief and you turn to God in his terms. Faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. But again, that's something that only... God does for his people. So before we move off this slide, what I want you to see is that this idea of wisdom, yes, I don't think Solomon is intending to give the gospel here, but when you brought it out to the wider parts of Scripture, I think that you see that this is only available for those who believe, that having true wisdom that comes from God is readily tied up to having saving faith in Jesus Christ. All right? Now, any comments, questions? We only got a few minutes. Uh, yes, uh, Rich. I think the key is, is that we're all born fools. Yes. I mean, we are fools. Amen. Every one of us, we're stiff-necked, and we think, hey, I got this. I can do this. That's the way I used to think. Yes. And I think uh, Psalms chapter uh, uh, 19, verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple or making wise the fool. 
And um, it's amazing to me how even an idiot, you know, out there, when he's given the gospel of Jesus Christ, when he is led by the Spirit to repent and to say, I don't got this, you got it, help, help me, help. All it is is help me, God. Yes. And he'll show you what repentance and faith in Christ is. The work of the Holy Spirit is to is to teach of sin and righteousness and judgment. Amen. And when he comes upon you and teaches that, anybody and everybody can become wise. And it's Amen. exciting that even a truck driver like me can, can be a wise man. Amen. You know, Amen. 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 Well said. That's well said, Rich. You know, as you're mentioning that passage, that John 16, 8, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And you're so right, and we're going to be seeing Bob teach us this when we get to this section in 1 Corinthians where the greatest wisdom ever given by God is the gospel. It's the greatest wisdom of all. And it's the Holy Spirit who enables us for the first time to see the profundity of it. So at conversion, we truly see the nature of our foolishness. And for the first time, we have a moral longing more for the gospel than we do to remain in our sin. And you're exactly right. That's why wisdom isn't something that is in the book of Proverbs or in the rest of Scripture locked away for the academic. The issue isn't an academic mind. It's a moral mind who wants the things of God. Bob has often taught us about having a love for the truth. Why do we need a love for the truth? That's something that comes from God. That's something that we are given by God so that we will seek him in his ways. And so you're right. It's not that the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God is is somehow devoid of rational thought. That's not the case. It is rational. If we don't become rational, then we're off in left field right away. But the point is it's more than just academic knowledge. There has to be a love for God. And that's why it's um, in Proverbs 1-7 we see that it's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and really, therefore, the beginning of wisdom, isn't it? So well said. I like that. Very good. All right, now let's move on to the announcement of calamity. We'll see this. We'll just got a few minutes left, but we'll finish this slide here, at least part of it. Proverbs 1, 26 through 28. Again, remember, this is wisdom personified. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when, you, when your dread comes, when your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Notice here in red, you have wisdom personified, and it's scoffing at the fool because now all of a sudden the fool is undergoing calamity because of their actions, because of their lack of wisdom, their lack of love of God. But all of a sudden, now they want to reach out. But now it's too late. And that's what the young person has to know, that at a certain point in life, you can destroy your life very quickly And it's too late to find wisdom. Trying to find wisdom after the day of calamity comes, again, is like trying to find the life preserver after you've already drowned. That's the point that Solomon is trying to make to us. Um, Real quickly, we have heard in the news recently that there was this young man who was shot in Brooklyn Center, the Dante Wright. And most of us are aware of that. And I think about how apropos this section of Scripture would have been for his life. I want you to think about what he did. He broke in. Well, he didn't break in. He was at a woman's home where he took a gun out and stole her money. And what does the book of Proverbs warn? Let's read. Let's remind ourselves. Let's look at Proverbs 1, 10 through 11. Turn your Bibles there. We just read this section 
uh, two times ago when we were studying this. Proverbs 1, 10 through 11. The whole warning that we've been reading about in the book of Proverbs for the youth is don't follow the criminal. Don't try to get illegal gain. Proverbs 1, 10 through 11 the, the, the father is saying to his son, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. That whole section is about doing things that are illegal, trying to steal someone's money. Some person who's made in the image of God, who busts their, you know, their work hard to make money, and someone steals from them. Right? Verse 18. Verse 18, can you read it? I don't have it on my screen. Oh, I'm sorry, we don't have a mic. Oh, here we go. Yes. And this is, and this is the consequence. Yes. Verse 18, Proverbs 1, verse 18. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Yes. So when they do the illegal activity, it ends up coming against them. So what happens to Dante, right? He takes a gun and he puts it to a woman, violating the scriptures. Remember, 1 Peter 4.15 says, make sure that if any of you suffers, none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief. So what's all the singing about at the funeral? He suffered as a thief. He suffered as a thief. And at a point, what Proverbs is telling us is to cry out for wisdom when you're in the grave in the casket. It's a little late. That's what we're learning today. That's what the youth have to hear. That today is the day to turn. Today is the day to have wisdom. Today is the day to build the work ethic. Today is the day to learn that if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat that it's not good to suffer as a thief or a criminal or a murderer. That's the wisdom that our generation, especially those in the inner city that are... One of the problems in the inner city is because the churches there, a lot of them in the inner city, I've seen it, are teaching not the true gospel, but the social gospel. And Marxism tells you, you deserve to have what that other person has. They teach you to be the fool. That's it's okay to steal. But wisdom that comes from the scripture says, no, it's not. That a work ethic is something that is important to the man and the woman of God. So my prayer is that perhaps we'll have more people who will get the wisdom of the scriptures to those who are not hearing them. And perhaps there's somebody in our life, a youth, a neighbor, a relative, some loved one, some youthful person that needs to hear these things so that they don't go the wrong way and that they'd hear wisdom before it's too late. It's something to consider. Let's, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for taking us by your hand out of sin and giving us a circumcised heart so that we may believe the truth of your gospel. We do pray, Lord, in the weeks and months ahead that you continue to help aid us in developing wisdom so that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. We do pray for our society. I pray for the churches that they would return to your word and teaching your doctrine rather than the doctrines of this world, that the youth may find you in salvation through faith alone in Christ, and that many young people would turn and live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.